Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Giselle Haro. Our podcast explores contemporary art, film, and design across six continents. I'm here to introduce episodes in a micro-series featuring Voices of the Future, the Fresh Art Student Edition. Today's story is among those produced by University of Miami students during the spring 2020 semester. They recorded real-life experiences of Miami art and culture. Their podcast, Miami Moves Me, is like a time capsule. These days, the global coronavirus pandemic and social distancing requirements have made adventures like theirs seem impossible. Those who travel to South Florida to chill at the beach might not know that Miami is a city that's always on the go. Highways are jammed at rush hour, and standstill traffic on the causeways to Miami Beach is legendary. Though UM student Christian Krantz finds driving perilous, he made his way to Books and Books in Coconut Grove to find out more about Making Good Time, a 2019 book about getting around Miami. Chris, who calls himself Chris with a K, is a native of Hialeah, a city northwest of Miami. In his voice, you'll hear Chris's curiosity and love for storytelling. Making Good Time is a collection of short stories based on true accounts of what it's like to get around South Florida. The book isn't filled with stories of the infamously crowded Palmetto or I-95, even though there exists enough for a bookful. Instead, it features entries that detail some of the important historical and cultural factors that have shaped how we interact with the city now. I had the opportunity to interview the editor, Lynn Barrett, on the process of making the book, as well as author Les Stanford and poet-engineer Richard Blanco on their pieces and the context they provide. As infamous as the city is for its driving mishaps and array of shenanigans, it was strange and almost a surprise that no one had come up with the premise for the book sooner. And so I asked editor Lynn Barrett about the book's humble beginnings, as well as her own journey of recruiting writers for the project. When this came about, how did this idea get in your head? How did this process begin for you? I've thought about it actually for quite a long time. I noticed that people were always telling me stories. If you would be in a particular place, and I do talk about this a little bit in the introduction, and you'd be in a place that people would tell you how it used to be, what it looked like there, what went on there. And there's a kind of relishing often of telling you, there's like one little, the mouth of the little river, is, which I mentioned there, they're like people smuggled in there during the you know prohibition and later smuggled other things. There's a kind of, and at the same time, that's how people got you know access to be able to do things that were good things. So there's this large oral history that's going on all the time. And it was very place centered, so that because pretty much everybody here came from somewhere else or their parents came from somewhere else. So there's a sense of we're not just automatically here, like people made effort to get here and it's an effort to continue to be here. And I, at some point, thought I just really want to capture a lot of these kinds of stories. And we're very rich in, in wonderful writers in South Florida. And so I proposed a book to highlight books, and we went forward from there. 
the press and I gathered a, a large kind of wish list of people that we might ask, and then we winnowed it, basically looking for a variety of writers and a variety of potential subjects that they might do. But we had, it was still a rolling thing, so I began, I think, with the first dozen people who I approached, and essentially I approached people by email. People are findable, writers are findable, and then would uh, offer some questions, suggestions, what would you write about? Sometimes I could suggest something because I knew things they were expert in. I knew Les had written a really great book about the building of the railroad, and so I knew that he had a lot of knowledge. Richard is both a poet and a civil engineer, so I knew. But there were other people where I wouldn't necessarily know that. I knew that they were writers, they might be reporters, that they would have a lot of options. And we had set a kind of target number of, of authors, a range, and went from there. When I spoke to author Les Staniford, I asked if he could elaborate on the importance of his piece and about his response to being invited by Lynn. What I received was an interesting history of railroads and South Florida transportation in a nutshell. My passage in the book, it's just, I think it gives a little bit of context because it talks about the first important road that was down here, the, the railroad, and particularly the railroad down the Keys. I think that uh, to many people, it's uh, they just assume, oh, there must have always been a road uh, down here, or a road from an early time. There would not have been a road down the Keys if it had not been for a railroad being built down the keys beforehand. There was no road, as I say before. The only way to get to those keys was by boat. The railroad stitched all those keys together, and only when the railroad was destroyed by the hurricane in 1935 was there a right-of-way uh, available that the state purchased for next to nothing, $500,000, It cost $30 million to build. The state built took over the right-of-way and they paved over what had been a railroad before used the great bridges that had been uh, constructed, the state could have never afforded on its own to have built these magnificent bridges and would never have done it. And the fact is, uh, given all the uh, environmental concerns that we have today and the cost factor, which has escalated by 200 uh, times, that highway would never have been built. We would probably still be going to Key West the same way you go to Martha's Vineyard by ferry boat. Uh, before uh, Henry Flagler extended his railroad down here, you couldn't get to Miami. And if you got as far as Miami, you couldn't go anywhere else except by boat further down uh, to the Keys because it was impenetrable. There were no roads. There were no means of transportation except for horses, but uh, you couldn't ride a horse uh, into the interior of this part of Florida at the time because there were no roads. It wasn't like the Wild West where you could pick your way along uh, through some rugged landscape. You would just sink into the muck uh, and die while mosquitoes were sucking your blood. In fact, one of the stories had it talked about this poor old mule up in uh, Palm Beach that wandered off into the mangroves and before he could get out was sucked dry by clouds of mosquitoes. That's the kind of stuff that went on down here before we had any means of transportation. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm making an assumption here. Uh, Flagler, known as the father of Miami, was the 
railroad that he opened, Florida East Coast? Yes, that was the Florida East Coast uh, Railway, and it came down here in the late 1890s, uh, 1897. The, the city was founded, and before that, there was no Miami. It was called Fort Dallas. There were fewer than 100 people that lived around the mouth of the Miami River on one side of it or another. They were trappers. They were traders. They were people in trouble uh, looking to, for a place to hide out. Uh, and Julia Tuttle was a homesteader with 640 acres, and she joined forces with another homesteader. They agreed to give up half their stake apiece. They gave that land to Henry Flagler to build whatever he wanted to on it, a railroad depot, a hotel, if he would just bring the, the railroad down from Palm Beach so that Miami could grow. And he finally agreed to do it, and that's how we came to have Miami. The grateful hundred who were here immediately wanted to incorporate the city and call it Flagler. And he was a pretty modest guy. He had none of that. He said, no, 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 no. You can, uh, I don't want any uh, city named after me. You just call it after the that river y'all are living on. Call it the Miami. And so that's how it became Miami. After learning a bit of history from Les, I had reflected on the city currently. Many of the marvels of modern day life like cars, ships, and skyscrapers are so commonplace that they are taken for granted. And yet Miami is home to some of the world's finest. Before speaking to him, I shared my awe of such creations and appreciation for the skills it takes to create them with Richard Blanco, an engineer with a unique perspective. Well, I mean, I guess in engineering, I, don't, I always do feel like I have double vision. Like I, when I look at something as an engineer, I, I, I know the infrastructure that people are not looking at. Like I see a road and like I know what's underneath it. A lot of times when I go on vacation, I check out manholes and sewer <laughs> covers just because to see what their infrastructure is like. It's kind of like, yeah, this hidden secret that people take for granted, actually. And it's, so I'm glad you're in awe of it because... As, I've, as I always say, take a look at anything around you any second of the day, and an engineer has something to do with it. Um, so it's something you know that we often take for granted, but that is so important. Um, and, and historically, as Les was just saying, you can see exactly why. But even on a smaller scale, just, just what we see from day to day, that's part of like what fascinates me about engineering is sort of having this, this other kind of knowledge, this secret other power, superpower to build things. In terms of the project and the piece, I mean, I, ne I hardly ever get to write about both my perceptions as an engineer and as a poet. As I've gotten older, I've realized that the two really do merge in the ways that, you know, like what you were just describing, the sense of, oh, that's a, sort of an emotional response. It's, 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 a, it's a poetic response, right? That the, the world we build, we have emotional responses to it and we connect with it and we and communities are built around it whether that's something as simple as you know 8th street for example that's that's still a locus of somehow history and memory for people uh 8th street meaning in little havana and like that there's so many places but to be able to get to write about those things and the way they connect is really really neat in this project in this segment of miami moves me I had the pleasure of interviewing the author of Making Good Time, Lynn Barrett, on the creation of her most recent anthology. Author Les Standiford spoke to me briefly on the history of railroads and bridges in South Florida. And poet engineer Richard Blanco shared his view of engineering from a poetic perspective. Please stand clear of the door. Please hold on while the train is departing. 
This is Fresh Art International Podcast. I'm Giselle Haro. Chris's conversation with Miami-based writers delves into the ways that boats, trains, cars, and planes have boosted the development of South Florida. His story shows us that there's so much more to explore in this magic city. To hear other episodes that highlight Miami, visit freshartinternational.com. On Fresh Art's special SoundCloud playlist, you can listen to more Miami Moves Me stories. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast anywhere you go to listen, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at freshartintl. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects, and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts and listeners like you make Fresh Art International possible. Visit our website to explore the podcast archive we've been building since 2011. While you're there, sign up for our latest news and donate to support our stories. Stay tuned for more Fresh Talk.